welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. I am your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'd like to start by thanking those of you who have given us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that because it helps other people to find the podcast. And obviously, I also love to hear what's been helpful and who you've particularly enjoyed listening to. So please do me a favor. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts and you haven't already given us a review, all you need to do is to scroll to the bottom of the page and to click on the ratings and reviews and then do your thing. Okay, with that said, let's get on with today's show. We all have a story, a story about how we started and where hairdressing has taken us and what we've learned along the way. For some people, it's an amazing journey of discovery and exploration. And if they were to look back at where they started and then where they've ended up, they would never have predicted that that would have been their journey. My guest today is Jessica Cram, a young lady who has an amazing and courageous journey that has taken her to different countries, forced her to learn new languages and embrace new cultures. I first came across Jessica through social media because of the beautiful work that she did. And when I dug in a little deeper, I could see that she'd had a varied and interesting life, all because of her hairdressing career. In today's podcast, we will discuss the opportunities that a hairdressing career presents, what it's like for a Western hairdresser to work in China, and why it's important to have the courage to explore the opportunities that life presents. And lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Jessica Cram. Hi, Anthony. Thank you for having me here. It's an absolute pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure to have you join us today. You're the the very first person with a a German accent. We'll talk more about that in a minute (laughs) that that we've ever had on the podcast. So uh, it's it's great to have you join us. And I know we have listeners in Germany already. So uh, it's great to have you uh, on the show today, even though you're going to be talking to me in English because I don't speak any other language. But that's another story. Okay, so Jessica, let's start off with what I do with everybody. I always ask people to sort of introduce themselves. Um, so in other words, who is Jessica Cram? Uh, give us your sort of two-minute backstory, and then we can uh, dig in. And I've got lots of great questions to ask you. I was born in East Germany, in Berlin, and uh, had a great childhood, When I was 16, I started to become a hairdresser, which was absolutely exciting because I was able to start with Vidal Sassoon, which by then I didn't know what it meant for my life. And uh, later on, moved to China to work for Vidal Sassoon in Shanghai, worked in an academy uh, as an educator and had also a great chance to meet fantastic people, had a great journey there until... I basically moved on, 2017, moved to the Philippines and started my own business. And and now I'm uh, basically having my own education business. Okay, fantastic. All right. Well, there's lots of exciting stuff there too. 
to dig into because uh, I, I'm intrigued about your your journey because it takes a lot of courage to you know to do what you've done and um, you know a lot of people sort of listen to someone's story like yours and they underestimate maybe just quite how much courage that takes so I, I want to go back to um, and you know where you were born and brought up because you know a lot of our listeners are young so they may not all know that until 1990 that um, East Berlin was actually a communist country under uh, Russian control. So um, I know you were, you know, only a young girl at the time, but but can you remember much about that time? Oh yeah, I can remember actually everything. I was eleven when the wall came down, and um, basically for me that day was, as for everybody else in our in this country. A breakthrough. It was uh, a waking up. It, it it was an absolute amazing moment. Probably more happier for the younger people than for some older people because, of course, they've been thirty years behind the walls and could not enjoy what we can enjoy these days. But yet, it was the most exciting moment for me. I remember in my childhood. Um, for, for me, and my family. And okay. people and friends around. Uh, it, 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 I saw the first time the color pink on that day. Uh, it, I never saw that color before. I knew it, that was the first time you'd seen the color pink. Yes, I did. I wow. did. We, you know, when you ask people from West Berlin who visited East Berlin by the time, they always said it's so gray. Yeah. And of course, you know, we had colors, but we did not have that variety I've seen then in shopping malls and people varying. So we did look also very old fashioned. You could always yeah. tell when somebody came from the East. And uh, it was, it was, yeah, it was interesting. We've been so, really so, a little so, bit so, more so behind. You, you don't mean that that was the first time you saw pink hair. You mean that was the first time you saw the color pink? Like really electric pink, yes. Wow. That and I incredible. thought, you know, we, I went yeah. through this phase, then having everything in this color from shoelaces to anything. Yeah, yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. You go mad about things you've wow. never seen. And it was so electrifying. It, it was massive. The, the, in, the, the input you had, the stimulation, it, it was amazing for, for everybody. Yeah. You know, everything was new and, and, and more shiny and simply more colorful. Yeah. So, so how did, I mean, I know you were only 11 when that finished, but it's not like it finished overnight. I mean, I know the wall came down pretty quick, but, you know, it, it, it took a long time to, uh, and it's, I suppose it's still a, a process at the moment of East and West sort of combining. But um, what I was going to ask you was, was how did growing up in a communist country, when you look at who you are today, how did that influence you to be the person that you are today? Or, or hasn't that had any influence on you at all? Except that you've got a what pink is- fetish. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks God I've passed that phase. Um honestly, I I do think looking back nowadays, I um, appreciate how much we did on our own, how much we were forced to uh, produce toys on our own, to play outside, uh, to get some excitement, to to literally be way more connected also within the family. No yeah. digital advi- uh, devices. There was not much TV we had. Uh, I think, I believe we had two channels and it was illegal to watch West TV, which we did, of course. But when the phone was ringing, you had to switch off everything because nobody was allowed to know. And I think it has driven me way more into my creative side 
And uh, I, it, it brought out way more flexibility. We had to improvise a lot. Nowadays, I'm still improvising a lot in many ways, many times. And you can really feel if somebody's from East Germany because we always had to make the best out of everything. Okay. So can, can you remember much about what the fashion was like then? I mean, as you said, mm -hmm. there was no color. Everything was so gray there. You know, so from a fashion perspective, I know you were just that little bit too young, but, you know, even as an 11-year-old girl, there would have been some awareness about that. So, so what are your, your memories about it? My memories by then, I had a brother. I have a brother, sorry, uh, who is uh, seven years older than me. And he certainly was way more advanced in, in terms of fashion. And, you know, my, my dad had family in the West. So we got parcels with clothes and it was always, you know, there was a print of a band on it. And that was something very, very special to have. Yeah. You were not allowed to wear it in school because it came from West Germany. It, it, it was a non-communist uh, thing you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't wear. It was influencing you in a bad way. And hair fashion and fashion with clothes, certainly we had colors, but nothing was as modern. Yes. I feel like looking back, nowadays you see vintage stores, they carry a lot of clothes from East Germany and we really stuck in the 70s. Even yeah. it was 80, uh, 89, we stuck in the 70s, starting with the 80s. Hair fashion was way more advanced. Going with my mom to the hairdresser once a month was super exciting for me. And she wore all these, you know, by then sissy catch and then it became fashion to have one side shorter, the other one longer. Everybody had a perm. You could see it. It was one thriving look everybody had at, at several stages. And, yeah. um, but yet we were really a little bit more behind. Uh, I believe that also the craftsmanship was never, um, you know, was never updated. Yeah. You became a hairdresser. The education was not like it is nowadays uh, in, in, in many countries where you sure. go to cosmetology, you know, you, you have different choices. And it yeah. wasn't given. So either you were a really talented hairdresser and you could see if people had a good haircut by then already. Or you were just a hairdresser who, you know, my mom had a really good one. Looking back at the pictures, she wore the coolest looks. So yeah, yeah. I really love that. Good. So how did you get into hairdressing? Obviously, you weren't, obviously you, when the wall came down, you were 11. So you still had another four or five years at least. So, so what was it that was, journey for you getting into the salon business? It was never really clear. I mean, to be very honest, I applied to become a police officer at one point. Wow. And when, yeah, when I was 15, I thought, you know, suddenly I saw X-Files and we had all these TV from America. You know, it, it was amazing. I, I, I got, everybody got a new perspective. And I thought, I want to become a, a, a criminologist. And I really applied. Meanwhile, cutting already my dad's hair, my, my friend's hair here and there. So I always love to cut hair. I messed up my fringes lots of time. And um, my friend who was very shy, asked me to come to an interview uh, to, you know, just be with her there. And it was Vidal Sassoon. And I stepped into the salon with her and I said, wait a minute. I want to work here too. I thought that those were the coolest people. We were just 15. I've never seen anybody like that. Neither so you, were, you, weren't, you weren't going for an interview. You were just helping your friend out. I was just going to right. okay. accompany yeah, yeah. her because yeah, she was yeah. so nervous and very introverted. In fact, she still works at the salon. And uh, I said, hey, you know, I applied 
right away. Meanwhile, she had her interview. I said, you know, is there a chance? Got an interview, got right in. And that's the end of the story. I did not go to the police school. And my dad didn't know by that time either. <laughs> he thought I really started to become a police officer. And he was wondering why within the first four weeks, I changed my hair color four times. I had different <laughs> cuts once a week. And he's like, okay, until I invited him, I said, Papa, come to this address. And I cut his hair as a model. And he said, okay, so this is where you work. And I said, yeah, I'm actually doing this now. And he was absolutely fine with it. Cool. Good. Yeah. yeah. That's a good story. Okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I haven't spent a lot of time in Berlin, but I have been there you know, three or four times. And when I think of Berlin, I think of an exciting city and I think of art. And I suppose that the Bauhaus movement that I believe is, is based in Berlin, uh, and I know Videl Sassoon was very influenced by Bauhaus. So I suppose what I want to ask you about is did that influence your beauty aesthetic your fashion aesthetic as a as a hairstylist that whole sort of you know minimalist it's, it's I, I don't know how to describe Bauhaus but it's strong and it's minimalist and it's clean and it's solid and I mean I, I suppose it is quite Germanic in its own way I mean did that have an have an influence on you or or do you do you just it was, it was there but not necessarily so to speak oh yeah I did learn about the Bauhaus, of course, for the first time in Vidal Sassoon. I was 16, read about it, read about it. It was an art school. It was a great movement by the time. And uh, it was a very short movement as well. And the idea behind, the philosophy behind, the principles behind were super interesting. I would say I could not quite grasp it in the beginning, yeah. what it had to do with hair and what Vidal Sassoon was connecting with it. Yeah. But during my time in Sassoon, and I, I believe strongly that nowadays I appreciate it way more, you do get influenced automatically by the whole way of cutting hair, the technical uh, preciseness and, and the, the deep idea of uh, recreating. And uh, Bauhaus has therefore been a very big influence for me. In fact, my uh, last lecture, lockdown lecture I did, I, I dedicated it really to the Bauhaus women who were very much until today in the background, but produced these super creative, amazing crafts they were actually pushed into. And um, it has always been a very, very big influence, though, yeah, I understood it uh, way later. If you look at the architecture, if you look at the design of the products, it's absolutely amazing considering how modern they are now. Mm. You know, they're so timeless. And yeah. I found that connection with hair is so important. It makes so much sense to have yeah. timeless looks who are adaptable to many different phases, bone structures or people. Yeah, that's a, the perfect answer, I think. Um, and, I, you know, don't worry, I'm the same. I, I often look at it and I appreciate it. And I understand what they talk about with it, but making the connection between Bauhaus movement and hair was always a fairly long bow for me, you know, but I, I understand yeah. exactly what it is you're talking about now. So, the, the, you know, we've never met except over Zoom. Yes. And, you know, the, the, the way that, you know, I met you was I saw you in a group, a Facebook group that, that I'm also in. And I clicked on it and I read and I was drawn to some of your work. It was a haircut that I saw you post. I thought, wow, that looks good. Yeah. That's refreshing, you know, because you see a lot of the <laughs> same old stuff on social media. But, you know, it was like this really refreshing look. 
and I, I clicked on it and, you know, I started to read about who did it. And, and I, I hear about this, this woman who's a, a hairdresser who was born in Berlin and, and then moves to China and then from China to, you know, other Asian <laughs> countries and then living in the Philippines. And I, I just thought, wow, that is, that is really interesting. Like, you know, it's, it's not the normal, you know, career trajectory. So you, you moved to China in 2004. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, okay. Correct. So what I want to ask you is this, you're, you're a young German girl. I, I don't know what age you were at the time, but you're, you're a young German girl in Berlin working in a salon. Um, what made you think that moving to Ch- Shanghai, you know, in China, a country where you'd never been, you couldn't speak the language, you didn't know anyone, what, what was it that made you think, oh, this is a good idea? Because that, that is a very courageous thing to do. So t- tell us about that. I think the best thing about it was that I did not think so much about it. <laughs> I was just very um, courageous. I was keen. I was uh, curious. I have to say, the year before I moved to China, I've been traveling through Southeast Asia and spent about uh, four months uh, in China. And okay. I honestly tell you, Anthony, it was the country, one of the countries, actually the only country, I said, I would not be very keen to return. Because like what you explain, the language, the people, the absolute culture differences, it's so diverse in so many ways. I thought, okay, that was way too exhausting and difficult. Yeah. But seeing this little bubble in Shanghai when I traveled there, this little academy with, again, these amazing looking people who totally stood out in the crowd there, it made me realize that I could be, again, one of them. Like when I had a stream, when I was 16, I thought, again, I want to be there. And I found it rather interesting always to join this group of creative people and thinking about, oh, my God, what will happen in China? So I went there and realized, oh, okay, actually, my English is not even good enough <laughs> because you have to see, uh, due to my past, it's I have not learned really English. I have not studied English. I learned Russian. I spoke uh, Russian in school for 10 years and have learned my English slowly through travels and, and movies, books, whatever was available then. And uh, in China, it, it was, I, I had to realize, okay, I have to catch up there way more, especially speaking uh, daily English. It's different than teach in English, hairdressing. And in China, you have to go really deep into details and express and explain. And you learn a lot of body language. And um, yeah, so when I went there, I realized, okay, I have to work a lot on myself to be able to really be there. But I had no regrets ever that I went there. So I tell you, when I entered first Beijing, I cried because I thought, oh, my God, I'm back in East Germany, where certainly I did not want to go back, but it really looked like East Germany. And then Shanghai, of course, is a bit of a different story. It's way more cosmopolitan. It has, it had way more exchange with foreigners. So you did not feel so strange. And um, I would say people there already way more open yeah, to what's yeah. there in the world. So yeah. Okay. Um, you you said that you spoke Russian for ten years. So you speak Russian. You speak English. You speak German. You speak at least one Chinese dialect now. Um, which yes, one do you speak? Mandarin. I speak Mandarin. Mandarin. You speak Mandarin. Yes. So there's four languages uh, that you're fluent in. Any others? 
I speak a little bit Tagalog, very Conti lang, but uh, very okay. little because right. So Filipino. <laughs> now I live in the Philippines. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so 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 four and a half languages. Well, four and a half. Yeah, I take my hat off to you. I think that's uh, that, that in itself is an incredible <laughs> achievement. Um, so you had you had actually been there before before you moved there. I didn't realize that. Yes. So you'd gone there and had done a little bit of traveling and thought actually I could do this. It, it is still a brave move. Uh, to go to China, yeah. I think I think it's a very brave move. Oh yeah, um, oh yeah. You didn't speak the language, so uh, I'm, I'm curious. Was the fact that China is a communist country did that make it easier for you because you'd grown up in a communist environment for the first eleven years of your life? Did that was there anything about that that made that move easier, more predictable, or something? It made it easier in a way that people, they're still very connected to each other. So always one person knew another person who could help you with that. It was a lot of keep giving hands to each other when you needed help, if you spoke the language, if you knew somebody. So that little community around you was very, very fast developed, which I thought was amazing. That I only knew from East Germany. Many people say you can feel, I mean, you can feel when you meet an East German uh, that they're very open and helpful. And, you know, I don't want to praise us, but we are very, we, we are making very fast yeah, contact and connections and the humbleness. Yeah, I think so. I think that helped. Also, it helped me a lot later into developing uh, teaching strategies because it's you know, they have been following a similar system I followed when I was in school. You do literally just learn and listen. You do, you're not very much invited to discuss things, to have your own opinion. You basically follow. And that's right. what the Chinese do too. That's yeah. why I, I think they're a great observer. Look how they can copy. They can copy your haircut, your bag, your whatever you want. One on one, it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's really crazy how much they learn through observing because that's the way they learned. Uh, you know, they went through school if they went through school, and that was the same with me. I think that helped me a lot. Yeah, and also they always appreciated me saying I'm from East Germany. They were like, "Oh, you're also from a communist country," and it made them always really excited. And uh, yeah, that was really good. So we had a kind of connection. I saw the young pioneers there. They had their red bowl. I was wearing it. You know, yeah. I they were they're still practicing it until today. They still yeah. have little pioneers. It's, it's amazing. So for me, that felt always a little bit warm. In fact. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I've only ever been to Shanghai. I've been there half a dozen times, and and it's amazing. I mean, it's like, and I only go to the city centre, yeah. so I, I, yeah. I see a, a fantastic city that's like I don't know, like New York or Hong Kong or something. It's just this amazing city um, that's very futuristic and extremely modern. And every time I go, Shanghai is, I won't say it's completely different, but it is changing as the whole of China is. It is and has changed so fast, um, and it continues to. So, what I want to ask you about is that when you went there from you know the West and you get a job working in Shanghai, I want to talk about the fashion. Was it mm. you know because they're very sort of cut off or were very cut off? I mean, I'm older than you, but it's not that long ago that you know whenever you saw anything about China, everyone was wearing a grey um, suit all identical and and people were riding push bikes and you know it's phenomenal how quick that has changed so you know what was the fashion like when you arrived there this german hairdresser from you know vidal sassoon who's arrived in shanghai and has got all these ideas about hair was it 
you know, is it easy to to incorporate that? Were they way behind or were they surprisingly, you know, up to date or did they have their own thing going and really couldn't care less one way or the other of what you were doing? What's your take on that? That's a very good question because it was, in fact, very difficult. The main characteristic haircut was the bob for us and we wanted to teach it and we wanted to cut it in the academy and as you know Chinese hair is brilliant bone structure is brilliant the hair has a great density it looks beautiful cutting it into a sharp line but the problem was in the cultural revolution everybody was wearing a bob so they have this kind of uh, freedom symbol this this you know one patriot girl who uh, you see the images of still uh, all over China and she is wearing a bob and it was very difficult to cut this haircut to cut the lengths you could go shorter or you could keep the hair longer people were very open but uh, they were very scared of looking different to stand out in the crowd was very oh it upset a lot of models I remember once um, one of my colleagues did a haircut in a contemporary course and of course it it had disconnections and it was something never anybody had 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 this haircut, had this sort of look on the streets. And the father came in with the, with the you know, a baseball uh, house. Really? A baseball bat? <laughs> yes. And wanted to beat up the teacher. And we were like, hey, wait a minute. The girl was happy. She didn't know if she liked it or not. But yeah. this sort of culture came yeah. more and more that people like to look different. Yeah. Suddenly they were like, oh, I don't want to look anymore like everybody else. But it took a long time long time uh, I would say it started in the beginning of maybe 2005 six seven ish in those three years where a new generation started to discover hair as fashion before it was all older models coming in because the haircuts were free they were curious they had the time they have not you know, much things happened before about their hair or to be center model at this moment. It was really exciting for them. But the fashion generally was way behind. But after that, it picked up way faster than Europe. Mm. The recent years when I obviously I once a year came back to Germany, of course, visit my family, and I saw fashion here starting, which has already ended in China. Yeah. And yeah. and you know, so they as as slow as they were in the beginning and as faster the information came into the country, the internet, all of that, everybody suddenly had a phone. You must imagine not everybody even had a phone in their apartment. They had phones down the alley, which everybody used from that street, and suddenly they had all cell phones. So they didn't even have that in between. So they grew really fast and they got really curious. And of course, uh, Japan, uh, Korea was a big influence into their fashion. Nowadays, it is uh, Europe. Nowadays, even I would say they set a lot of fashion uh, uh, for the for the rest of the world. The street style you see there is absolutely amazing. People yeah. just are not scared. They just yeah. wear everything, anything. And as I, as I said, it's important that they look different. They want to stand out. Yeah. I mean, like I say, I've only ever been to Shanghai and I've always been impressed with how modern and how yeah. fashionable and up to the minute everything is. Um, is it like that in other Chinese cities? Or is, is no, Shanghai? It, it's not, right. Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, Hong Kong, I think Chengdu, I would say they're very special. Shanghai and Beijing the most. Hong Kong as well, of course. 
but yeah. it's 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 really um even Shanghai, you drive 20 minutes out of the city, you're absolutely in the countryside. Yeah, there you could thinking. still yeah. see people with uh, their gray suits if you want to. Really? Still okay. having their Mao yeah. images in their cars and on their, okay. on their walls. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. This yeah. still exists. And I think okay. it will still take a time that to get that generation out because younger people are going a very different way. They have very, yeah. very much more uh, information and chances these days, of course. Yeah. They, yeah, they choose a different way. Yeah. Um, it, it strikes me as it would be difficult to just go to China and and work. I mean, I went there once, you know, the first time I went there, the, the performance to get a visa and everything was ridiculous. Um, mm. So so how did you how did you get a job there? I mean, you know, how did, how did you get a visa? How did you, how were you allowed to work there? Is it easy to do or not? In fact, if you have a company, it is easy. They right. do everything for you. They prepare you? papers you, you, you need. They, uh, you know, find an apartment for you. So I was granted as an expert there and it was amazing, Anthony. I mean, everything was done for me. Right. You know, I had never experienced that sort of privilege as a hairdresser. Okay. And the only thing you have to get through is a weird health test where they, you know, x-ray you, they take your blood and you think, oh my God, I hope they changed the needle. And, you know, it is very rustic and very yeah, old yeah. in the hospitals. The hygienic uh, <laughs> standards weren't given then yet. And they yeah. poke things in every hole of your body seriously to, I don't know what they want to test on you. But uh, it was, um, that part was, was very exciting because you thought, okay, let's see if I still live in three months. But for the rest, it was uh, very easy for me. It okay. was not very difficult. I believe it is different if you uh, go there and just start then to find uh, right. a company to work for. What? But um, I have done it. But by that time, it was still way so, easier. Nowadays, so you, it's way more difficult. You were sponsored by Sassoon. So yes. they, they gave you the job, they organized all the paperwork, and so it was easy. Exactly. And they even had to get you an apartment, right? Okay. Yes. All right. Well, um, you know, it's still courageous to do that. Um, that just that move. It's the language that I can't get my head around. Mm. Uh, I mean, I, I don't speak any other languages. I just speak English like so many English-speaking people. Um, but there's some languages that if you listen to, you know, uh, Spanish, French, Italian, you know, because they – all have the same alphabet to start with and they all have a, a yeah. Latin base, you can exactly. sort of figure out often what's being said, you know, even if you can't speak it, you, you can sort of navigate it to some degree. But Chinese and Japanese, completely different alphabet and totally different sounds. How did yeah. you get by? I mean, a hairdresser has to talk and an educator has to talk. So how did yeah. you get by with the language side of it? And, did, and how long did it take you to learn Chinese? In the company, in the academy, we had in every classroom, we had each a translator. Fabulous girls who, you know, uh, started to learn about hair. So we teach them a little bit about hair so they could really express the terms in Chinese because for them, it was a, a big challenge also to translate it. As for me, in the beginning, I tell you, Anthony, I thought, oh my God, I will not learn this language you can't read anything. So you can never take the bus. You could not take the train. You had to go out by foot or you had to go out by taxi, which most of the time you did because it was ridiculously uh, cheap. cheap yeah. And you do 
learn first sounds. This language is a screaming language. So people talk really loud and many pronunciations go up and down. And often you think, oh my God, they're choral or why is he screaming at me? And, and that was really bizarre in the beginning. I remember you had to really understand that uh, culture background behind the language to really understand why are they talking like that and in the beginning I really learned sounds I copied the sounds and tried to repeat words and, and, and I took a few lessons but to be honest I thought okay I did it for three months and, and thought I, I don't you know I don't want to be able yet to write the language and it was very much focused on writing the Hansel the letters so I said okay listen you know what I threw myself out there I went out I talked to people I went out with my translator with colleagues we spoke in Chinese and English so we, we, we tried to kind of teach each other and that was the greatest part I think most of the uh, Chinese I learned was literally in a classroom and the Chinese I speak the best is haircuts I can translate any haircut in Chinese I can really? explain you every technique in Chinese at the end in work sessions I was literally speaking Chinese yeah, yeah. yeah. If you ask me to communicate about uh, politics or something, of course, certainly I would fail. But the daily things you learned in a taxi or on the market and people, they're really helpful because they appreciated it so much that you spoke their language, that you speak yeah. their language. Until today, when I go to China, I jump into the taxi in the airport. I just say the address and immediately the taxi driver says, oh, my God, your Chinese is so amazing. They mm. acknowledge that their language is not easy and they appreciate everybody who learns yeah. it or even tries to speak it. Yeah, yeah. Nobody exactly. will ever laugh about it. So they yeah. really respect it. And and yeah. it, it was amazing. It was is, amazing. Is, is your Russian still fluent? Uh, I tell you what, three years ago, I've been in Vietnam and uh, we've been in the monsoon times. It was raining. So we had to sit down in a little pub and I drank a few beers and met a Vietnamese guy who spoke Russian. My Russian became better after many beers. So, you, <laughs> need, <laughs> you know, it needs a certain kind of, yeah. <laughs> I, I, to, I guess, yeah. I would say. I think I'd, I have to, I'd have to drink a lot of Russian before I, I, I sorry, I'd, I would have to drink a lot of beer before I could speak Russian. <laughs> yeah. So I understand way more than I can speak, but it comes back. It's it's everything okay. actually is there in your head. I, I yeah. really learned that. Yeah. Don't be afraid. Everything is there. You can manage. You can pull out of your library you have in there. And it comes back if you need it. Yeah. So it really but, does. Just, just back to China for a second. Uh, wh what, what did you like most from a hairdresser's point of view working in China? how open the people are, not only the hairdresser, uh, also the clients. The clients, uh, the, the people, how open they are to explore new looks. You were really, a, you are really appreciated as a stylist, hairdresser, or educator in China. They trust you their life, seriously. I mean, they sit down, they pay $200 for your haircut and say, you design a haircut for me. You just do it, whatever you think you want. And they walk out with pride because they think this haircut was individually, specially designed for them, which we do, which we should do for everybody. Yeah. Is that because you're European that they have that trust? No, they they have that trust. They have a trust. Yes, okay. yes. Wow. Of course, the 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 power of image imagery has become 
a thing that people, you know, don't communicate so much over language anymore. They show images. I want to look like that. And yeah, Chinese hairdresser can copy that perfect, but the client can't do it at home. So yeah. uh, therefore, I think that, you know, yeah, people... I, I think that I like the most that people were just so open. I mean, if you go, you have you have been in, in Shanghai many times, you've seen great architecture. Where do you see this complex amount of great, amazing futuristic architecture elsewhere in the world? Yeah. It's because people can play there. People are open. Nothing is so over-regulated there. Neither the salon business, neither the architecture, you know, urban planning would be a, better, a good thing to do there sometimes. But uh, China was a playground. I, I, I think it, it has changed now a little bit. In the beginning, it was amazing. It was uh, absolutely amazing because you could translate any look on anybody because they were just simply so open after a while, after they learned that the bob is actually really fashionable. Cool. Got you. You know, since you, you, you've left China, is there, is there anything that you got from working in China that's helped you, whether it's in terms of, you know, now that helps you and you and you and the rest of the world can learn from, whether you're talking about something to do with service or something to do with the client experience or something to do with business or the creative side of it. Is there any one thing that you'd say the rest of the world should learn this lesson? What I really learned in China is uh, during the years I've been there to read people better because of the language barrier often, you know, even having a translator doesn't mean it's always 100%. And um, what I learned for me in my, in, in the technical way is to learn how to read hair texture, how to read people better, uh, to, to really see a mistake coming already. Because you have to explain everything in such little detail, starting from what's the difference between round and square. You know, that common knowledge we have in European countries, in America, in Australia, uh, it's not always given. And I learned how to explain, you know, her haircut in very simple ways, in really deep details. That's what I really learned. I learned how to work with extreme hair texture, bone structure. So, in 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 business in business wise, actually, I don't I don't really. Mm, well, actually, because that's that was going to lead perfectly into okay. into that next question. Because we were talking about this before we started recording, and I I said to you basically hold that thought because I I want to make sure we talk about that. Uh, and it was this idea of I mean, regular listeners to the podcast will know that I often talk about different business models and what is the future of you know the business models in the hairdressing industry because they are changing rapidly. Um, and I was talking to someone in China and he said to me that there were a lot of salons that essentially were the cooperative business model where there was maybe one person who owned 40% of the business and then the other 60% would be owned by the staff and that there were lots of advantages to that sort of cooperative business model. So, what I want to ask you about is because you're the only other person I've, uh, who I, who I know who's mm. worked in China who can tell me whether that's true or not. So so is is that true? 
And and what? How does that work? What does that look like? What are the advantages or disadvantages from that? What can we What can we learn from that? Because I think that that's a very forward thinking way of working. I, I don't think yeah. it's a backward yeah. way of working. I think that is a mm-hmm. really interesting way of working. So, uh, over to you. You tell us about that as as to whether I've uh, misinterpreted that or not. As for my experience. Contracts though not have a big meaning in China. You can have somebody sign a contract, but if they want to leave, they leave. And in in in, in terms of law, they are not very protected. Neither are you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it has a lot to do with loyalty that people are able to get a few percentage of the salon because they simply put way more work, uh, harder work, uh, hardship into the work they do. And uh, people who stay long-term in companies, and I have seen and experienced that not only in hairdressing business, they do have a right and they will ask for eventually because they know it is common to get percentages of this of the business to um yeah to stay and to have also better better opportunities and possibilities so do they get i know this is digging in a bit on the detail you may not be able to answer it i'm just curious do they get a percentage of the profit at the end of the year or do they get ownership of a percentage of the shares in the company i think you will find both models both models. You will find both models, yeah. So okay. um, I know from a friend who got basically a business chair after she worked uh, many years for for a company, uh, which their own restaurants. I know that she became uh, the business partner eventually. But I know that in salons and uh, businesses for manager or hairstylists, it's very common to give them percentage of the profit. And having uh, a base a salary is uh, which is really really low you always rely on the percentage you get from you know the business um profitability at the end of the year exactly is that paid on a annual basis or a monthly basis do you know you know that it's the culture uh, the culture in china is that you get really three salaries at the end of the year and before Chinese New Year, which is actually today, happy Chinese yeah. New Year, uh, it's, uh, you get it once a year, as I know from hairdresser. Okay. Once a year, yeah. you get the big payout because the problem after that big payout before the Chinese New Year is that people leave. Yeah, of course. So yeah. they are holding on to it for a whole year yeah. and then they will get it. They get their percentage. They got their, you know, a triple salary. Yeah. And then it depends on how much more you offer them. There is a constant rise in salary, in profits uh, on a yearly basis. And it's yeah. very, very common. And as soon as another company offers more, people leave. Yeah. yeah. But, but it, it's, it's obviously, really like it's a good you know the good side of looking at that sort of model is it it should increase staff loyalty because yes. they're getting you know they're less likely to leave because they're on a, a, a they have an interest in the business and the profitability yeah. of the business uh, and as well as increasing loyalty so staff retention it it should also increase the amount that people care because it's their business. So they're going to mm-hmm. pick up that towel. They're going to, you know, clean the front door. They're going to, you know, do the laundry because Correct, it's yeah. their business, you know. So I would have thought yeah. that, that would 
you know, be be a positive side of it. But they uh, anyway. they they put way more hardship in. It's true. Yeah. yeah, it's it's you know it's it's really true. As soon as they are way more involved, they they give way more, and yeah. not only coming to work and leave again. They're really living the work yeah, literally. Exactly. Because okay. I need to imagine salons are open from ten to ten every yeah. day. There is really? no Sunday off. Yeah. So yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so I didn't know that. So every salon is open from ten in the morning to ten at night, seven days a week. Exactly. Okay. And the, and the people work twelve hours. They do work if they want to. Uh, right. Certainly, you have a day off. Some yeah. people have only once a month uh, a day off, but they work. They really. Wow. That's that's also one thing I actually really dislike. Actually, coming back to that question for just a short while, it was very difficult explaining them how to gain creativity or how to you know have a how how much it influences you as an artist to have a hobby to do something else than being in the salon because they had so much working hours a week that it is very difficult for them to read a book to watch a movie to you know to go out to see an exhibition they don't have the time one day they're off they're literally sleeping which we can totally understand after you work you know 12 hours a day and you have to be present in the salon all the time it is not easy to develop uh, into an artist who has literally you know the time to uh, feed that that or to satisfy that uh, need and that's lots of businesses do that not just hairdressing yeah that's yeah, just quite a, that's exactly. just quite common that people work those it's 24 7 in asia generally yeah. so there yeah, is yeah. Uh, no tuning down like in germany sundays are totally quiet yeah people tune down which is great i think it's actually a great habit yeah, it's important to have a yeah work-life balance i mean i know my japanese friends they work the way you just oh, said yeah. the chinese do and it's just ridiculous yeah. i mean you know they're they're yeah. You, you, you've got to live as well. But, but I mean, on the other side of it, that is why, as I alluded to before, it's why China has been transformed. It's sort of the work ethic, and there's yeah. not really a choice. The work ethic that a billion people have is phenomenal. Yeah. And, and, you know, so they've transformed the country. Okay, let, let's move on from China. Um, you, you left there after 14 years. Um, what, what made you leave when you did? Was there a trigger for that? Yeah, I met my wonderful wife in China. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I moved to the Philippines. I left China also because it became drastically, uh, it felt like the Iron Curtain came down again. So, you know, you had no no really good internet anymore sometimes. Uh, you had to have VPNs to get through it. And I don't want to go into the political part, you know, but it, it has, uh, it had changed a lot. For the worst uh, again. So what was the trigger? Yeah, for the worst again. What was the I, be- I believe the, the president and uh, the okay. idea of keeping China still closed, yeah. As, as a bubble, yeah, in yeah. a bubble, to keep people uh, intact, to be able to still guide them and to, you know, to influence them, honestly. Yeah. I do also see the need with this amount of people because it can have, you know... Uh, imagine all of them would start a revolution and it's it's really it's it's amazing the amount of people is just absolutely yeah. overwhelming sometimes and what they're capable of if they are you know anyway yeah. but uh they will have that uh, revolution it's just a matter they will of way. eventually yeah it starts already it starts already <laughs> no, slowly you can't keep the lid on. yeah exactly you can't keep I the agree. lid on forever. 
you know, they're starting a different revolution. It's more mm. in the internet. They're using platforms and there's so much out there in a very quiet way because they have to find niches and ways to express that. Uh, you know, when you left, I know that you had already worked in a lot of different Asian countries, mm. um, you know, whether you're talking about Japan or Taiwan or, or, or Korea or the Philippines, etc. Was the fact that you'd worked in China and lived in China for so long, did that make it easier for you to to segue into teaching in those other countries, those other Asian countries? Yes, I think so. It, it made it very easier. First of all, you you are exposed already to to different cultural backgrounds where you find, you know, there are many Chinese in Singapore and, and, and everywhere. So the, the, the idea and the sense of beauty is really quite spread in Asia. It's it's a kind same of direction. And um, that made it way easier. Also knowing the hair texture already, knowing many other things. And this this really the challenge to teach in China uh, in the beginning made me literally a better teacher. I think I also understood hairdressing way better teaching yeah. in China because you have to start thinking in a very different way and you're way more challenged to express yourself in a haircut and express a technique in a different language uh, with people who have not such a strong educational background often. Uh, it made me a stronger person, a stronger teacher, definitely. And also it encouraged me to go out there way more. You know, it, it didn't stop me in the first you know, first of all, Anthony, it's really having a comp in the scissor and having this power, those powerful tools to go out there and be able to survive everywhere and to be able to earn money everywhere makes it way more easier for me to see, hey, I can go anywhere. Mm. You know, if I don't like it, I go somewhere else. But I have my craft mm. and this is gold in your hands. It's so powerful and you don't have to be scared to to cut anywhere else if you don't speak the language or what. Hair dressing language is the same all over the world. You know, you can't invent the real new. There is everywhere the techniques, you have the angles, you do have different bone structures and hair densities or what. But it's it's so powerful. And I think, yes, China helped me a lot to become more courageous, to be way more open and um, also to appreciate that time, which was in very many ways, very often very challenging. But um, yeah, it made me a stronger person. Yeah. I, I'm intrigued. I'm, I'm trying to understand where you would put Chinese hairdressing. If there were two influences in the world of hairdressing, and one of them was that more English or German, very sort of technical approach. Mm. And the other and the other one was the Italian or French, more feeling approach. Okay, so I'm dividing them up into those two categories. Where would China fit in that? Are they more influenced by that sort of French, Italian feeling side of hair, or are they more influenced by a, a more technical approach? I think they are... In the beginning, I would say the the early two thousand. Uh, what what you see in the back, they were way more influenced by looks. I would say you know that that you know soft uh, sort of feel. I would not even say French or Italian. I would yeah. also say rather you know American beauty, sort really? of Hollywood like. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that that in, in in the early in the beginning, they were yeah. way more. But after that, now I think it's rather technical. Yeah, the technical side of hairdressing, they've really learned and see how important a good technique is to 
achieve these haircuts. And it depends really on the hairdresser. You still you will still find a lot of different style directions because China is sort of in the middle and they're influenced by so many things. You know, let it be Japan, let it be America, let it be Europe. But I think nowadays the German technical part or the British technical part, those clean lines, this is that's what they want to achieve. And what you see now, it's mm. way more modern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Um, 2017, uh, you moved to the Philippines. You opened up your own company called Jessica Cram Hair Education. Uh, I know now at this point in time, because of COVID, that you're actually back in Berlin. Uh, yeah. But but what is Jessica Cram Hair Education? What what exactly is it? I am offering courses uh, in salons and academies, teaching basic hair cutting techniques, uh, fundamental techniques, contemporary techniques. Uh, I, I teach. Education. I, I educate teacher. I uh, like to really bring this language into salons uh, to to really make people understand how important communication is with the clients. How important it is to read them proper. And I really feel like my strengths is that I really can reflect my passion in people. And uh, I, I like to motivate. So Jessica Crime Education is really also a great motivator coming in the haircutting that people are not so afraid anymore. You you do learn a technique and you practice it your whole life. It's it's never, you know, perfect or uh, teaching people courage, being more courageous, uh, using their feeling more. Due to the lack of techniques they often have, they use more feeling, which is great because it's nothing you can teach a person. You can't teach a feeling. You can't make anybody really creative, but mm. you can teach a technique. And through these techniques, it's beautiful to see that they can simply express themselves more. And that's where I really see me coming in often in academies and uh, salons where I teach. Um, basically, I teach, you know, I'm, I'm very deep anchored. Um, in, into this soon education, of course, because I've been very long time with the company, and I believe in through the principle in the principles. And um, yeah, that's basically me. Uh, I just like to play here with other people and teach them a proper technique and teach them uh, to be courageous. Okay. Last thing I wanted to ask you about was a, a comment about you know what you've done. As I said at the beginning of this, you know, you've 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 travelled the world. You speak five different languages. Uh, you've you know you've worked in China, which is such a big leap, you know, for a Westerner to go and live there and work there and to teach and learn the language. Um, and and that's not for everybody, you know, to have. Not everyone has yeah. the courage or the desire to 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 live and experience different cultures like that and learn different languages. But what I want to ask you is, what advice would you give to young hairdressers because you touched on this before when you were talking about the tools of of hairdressing that you can take them anywhere and that they can give you a great living and that you can work anywhere you can do anything like it and that's an amazing thing about hairdressing so you know what advice would you give to some young hairdresser listening to this about having courage and stepping outside of their comfort zone and and taking risk just be it be uh, be courageous be 
courageous step out of it because you can always go back and there is never a failure it's only always ever an experience I'm scared like anything still going into classrooms I'm nervous you know having a great confidence uh, does not help <laughs> often because I'm still uh, very nervous about, and it's very normal and those are things that will also never leave you Mm. So if you let that fear of, of thinking, oh, will I make it? Will I be able to do it? If that fear stops you right away, you have to fight it. You have to just go out there, go little steps, but do it. Make an experience living or working in another country. Change salons. I mean, these days it's possible. If you are not happy, especially, if you feel like you want to go out more and learn more, go take a course. Every opportunities these days are given, are open. You can find education online these days. Just explore. Mm -hmm. But, you know, don't don't really stuck, which unfortunately many had as a do. They don't, they don't feel encouraged. And as soon as you did the one, the first step, you'll see the second step is very easier. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, there, there might be always failure, but you will also have failure if you stay on one spot. So yeah. just go out, do it. You can't fail. We, we, you know, apparently in Europe, they did a statistic, hairdresser are the most happiest people. And we are happy because we can express, we can express ourselves every day. Yeah. And that's what I love on my job. And it can be on anybody. Basically, we exchange happiness most of the time yeah. and it's a great thing and you can yeah. find any anywhere really anywhere and you can find people who appreciate your craft and who appreciate yeah. you as a person um yeah i just that's what i always say go do it go out take a three months break uh take a sabbatical year explore travel save up for it i know we are not the biggest earn on the planet but you will see how much your craft is worth just if you go out of your comfort zone because mm. in your comfort zone there's no growing there's only comfort exactly yeah i've never heard it expressed the way you just said it uh which was that we share happiness yeah and and most oh, of the time and and you know and that's an interesting way of looking at it, isn't it? That like essentially if you're a busy hairdresser, you're standing behind a chair, you might see 10 or 12 clients in a day, you know, um, and you exchange happiness with most of them. They're people exactly. that are regulars. Hi, how are you? Great to see you again. Blah, Absolutely. Blah, blah, blah. You know? yeah. And so you're exchanging happiness. I've never thought of it like that. That's a wonderful, that's a wonderful way to finish this up. Uh, you exchange happiness. Okay. All right. So, uh, <laughs> Jessica, where can people connect with you on Instagram? or other social media channels? Yes, you can connect with me on Instagram under my name, Jessica underscore Crumb. And you can find me on Facebook as well. Uh, now, wonderfully on your podcast as well. Thank you so much, Anthony. And um, yeah, those are my two platforms. I will have a website in the future, definitely. Okay. And hope also in the future to have a space where I can also teach and provide space for other educators to yeah. uh, invite invite your students yeah, yeah but so far you can meet me on uh instagram and facebook okay well i will put those links in the show notes and it's jessica j-e-s-s-i-c-a -S 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 underscore cram which is k-r-a-m-m -M. okay it's a double m so um 
we need to wrap up. If you're listening to this podcast with Jessica Cran and you've enjoyed it as much as I have, I've I've really learned lots of things here. I'm still trying to get over the color pink thing in East <laughs> Germany. If you hadn't seen pink until you were 11, uh, that's criminal. Uh, but if you've enjoyed this podcast with Jim, Jessica, then please take a screenshot on your phone and share it to your Instagram stories. So uh, to wrap up, Jessica, have you got any final words for our listeners? Everybody stay safe, um, be happy, do whatever you want. And um, yeah, be courageous and go out there because you have the happiest job in the world. <laughs> oh, perfect. Perfect. Okay. So to wrap up, Jessica Grant, thank you very much for being on the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success. 